0: Good evening. There is a part of me that wants to say, I know what you're thinking, but it's not true. I don't know what you're thinking. But I want to say that only in relationship to you probably thought I was going to be up here with the children tonight. <laughs> I hate that for you, that you thought, <clears throat> but do know I was ready in my mind anyway. And then I came tonight, and Furman had the bucket, and I didn't want to take it, so I said, are you? He said, yes, I got it tonight. Who am I (laughs) to stand in the way of a servant of the Lord doing good? Not I. And so, thank you, Furman, (laughs) thank you. Philippians chapter 1, if you have your copy of God's Word tonight. Philippians chapter 1, we continue our discussion about Paul's perspective. Not everything in the book is a matter of perspective. Sometimes Paul will just state a fact or something that is occurring, and then after that, he'll give his perspective on it. He'll make an observation and then give his perspective. Let me say this very quickly as it relates to perspective. Circumstances don't determine perspective. At the very least, they shouldn't. Now, some people don't realize this, and that's why their perspective changes, like the weather. Every set of circumstance brings on a new perspective. And so, when things are great, they're great. When things are bad, they are anything but great. Circumstances are not supposed to determine our perspective. The processing of the world, people, events, and circumstances through a spiritual filter and lens, that is what determines perspective. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4:16 to 18 would refer to it as seeing the unseen. Even there, you can hear Paul's perspective. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, to appreciate that, you just have to read 2 Corinthians 11, started about verse 23 and read to the end of the chapter and listen to Paul's affliction. And then hear him say, There our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more than exceeding and eternal weight in glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are seen are eternal. This— Is what determines perspective and you need to have that before the circumstances occur every time we read the book of Philippians Paul is in prison every time we read it and as a result of that his perspective is from that position Jesus is on the cross and he says father forgive them for they know not what they do Stephen is quite literally in a hole in the process of being stoned. That is, the stones are raining down with the intention of killing him. And Stephen says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's perspective. Paul is in prison and he keeps saying, Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice, rejoice. Even in this chapter, he'll say, I rejoice. How's your perspective? Be careful not to be in great circumstances and have a poorer perspective than someone on a cross being murdered, someone in a pit being stoned and killed, and someone in prison falsely accused and beaten. Make sure that your perspective would still be good if you were in any of those. How much more if you and I find ourselves well, with a flat tire or something inconvenient like that. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's perspective. Three things in this chapter we'll note this evening relative to Paul's perspective, and he just addresses them. The first one is preachers and their preaching. And it only stands to reason that a preacher would have a perspective on preaching and preachers, and Paul does. He lists three motivations that these, these particular preachers have, and then later he'll give his perspective on them. Let's note, first of all, that Paul acknowledges and is aware that false teaching exists, verse number 15. He says, some, to be sure, <clears throat> are preaching Christ, even of envy and strife. There are false teachers in Paul's day, and Paul says, yeah, They're out here, and then they're doing bad things. There seems to be people who are either unaware or just will not accept that false teaching and false teachers occur. That just because a person says the name of Jesus does not mean what will follow from that listing of his name will be the truth. It's not. The Scripture goes out of its way seemingly to warn over and over and over again about false teachers and false teaching. Jesus does it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Our Lord says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Paul warned Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ, unto another gospel, which is not another. But there are some that pervert the gospel of Jesus. Peter warned, 2 Peter 2 and verse number 1, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. Jude 1 and Jude chapter 1 of his book, verses 4 to 16, really the preponderance of the book of Jude is about false teachers and their teaching. In fact, verse number 3, he says, I wanted to write unto you of the common salvation, but it was needful for me to write unto you to earnestly contend for the faith. Why? Because of false teaching. Now, we should note with regards to false teaching, it is not simply the dissemination of error. Well, now, certainly it can include that. But with regards to false teaching, their identification is known both by their character and the content of their preaching. And thus you have the preacher is false and the preaching is false. Listen to all of those examples and what you find is both the character of the individual and the message were false. I say that because you could take an individual like Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28, and strictly speaking, he is disseminating error. Well, that's true. He, he, is not, he does not know fully yet. But Aquila and Priscilla will take him to the side, and they will teach him the way more perfectly. But I don't know a person in the world who would call Apollos a false teacher. Because it's both the character and the message. And all of those warnings are about that. The individuals that Paul is talking about, their character and their message is wrong. Turn over to chapter 3 and notice what he says later in the book about them. In chapter 3 in verse number 18, he says, For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping— That they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their bellies or appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Those are the individuals that the Apostle Paul has in mind when he says these things in chapter 1. The sad side of error and why the apostles and prophets are so opposed to it and so withstanding is because error puts man into bondage. It ties him, chains him to man and human tradition, to error. It ultimately dooms his soul. That's what it does, Galatians 1, 6 to 9. You're leaving Christ. You're being bound to someone else. Conversely, John 8, 31, 32, the truth sets us free. It's that framework that has the apostles and prophets so opposed to these individuals who are the enemies of the Christ and his cross. And Paul is sitting in prison, and he knows that their motives are not right. He says of them, some preach Christ even of envy, jealousy, spite, ill will. Put that together in your mind, if you will. Preaching Christ from envy. Preaching Christ from jealousy. Preaching Christ from ill will. How would you even do that? But that is the nature of what's happening. Paul also says, and of strife, contention wrangling, a quarrel, individuals who, to use Peter's language, would rest and pervert the Scripture, twist them out of their context, abuse them, make them say something that they don't and were never intended to teach. You could read Acts chapter 13 verses 43 to 45 and find those very people doing that very thing in opposition to Paul and Barnabas' preaching. Paul however is not a move moved from their personal attacks it's not just their preaching Paul goes further and says that their motives are intended to hurt him keep reading there in verse number 15 Paul says some to be sure, are preaching Christ, even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. We'll make a note of that. But he says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking or hoping to cause me distress in my imprisonment. It's not simply that they're teaching things that are false. They have Paul in their crosshairs. They have Paul in mind. What they're doing is intending to hurt Paul. That's what they want to do. Now, the man is already in prison. I guess that's not enough. Paul says they hope to add affliction. They hope to hurt me further than being in prison. They want to pile on. We might use the expression, they want to kick a man when he's down. What's Paul's perspective concerning that? Well, that brings us to point number two. That really isn't a matter of perspective. Paul's just stating the case there in verses 15 and 16. He gets to his perspective here in verses 17 and 18. He has observed about preachers and preaching, and now here's his perspective. Verse 17, Paul's perspective is this, Christ is preached, and I will rejoice— Verse 17, Paul says, Their former preach Christ out of envy and strife, rather," he says, "...ultimately hoping to add affliction. What then?" Verse 18, "...only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in that I will rejoice." Paul addresses his his posture or his position. Verse number 19, he says, for I know, or he says, they know, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul says, they know me and I know them. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. They know that. But they're preaching Christ. And Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in that. Now, he adds this thought back up in verse 16. We notice some of goodwill. And so, it's noteworthy that Paul understood he also had fellow laborers and they were a great encouragement to him. Sometimes when false teaching is occurring and false teachers are seemingly have their way, some people can lose sight of the fact that there are good people out there. There's righteous preaching being done. There are faithful preachers out there preaching the Word. You could get so enamored and fixated on the error that you lose sight of the fact that some are preaching the truth. Paul says some of goodwill. Some are doing it right, and Paul says as a result of that, it's a great help to me. He also mentions them. Notice chapter 2, verse number 19. Concerning those who are doing it correctly, verse number 19, Paul says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no man so like-minded as myself who will naturally care for your estate or who will be concerned about your welfare. He says in verse 21, they all seek their own, not the interests of Christ, but not Timothy. No, Timothy is doing it right. Timothy's preaching the truth, but it's not only Timothy. Verse 25, he says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Some preach Christ of envy and strife. yes. Some hope to add affliction to my bonds. Yes, but there are some preaching Christ of goodwill. Paul says, I'll rejoice. Ultimately, Christ is being preached. He's not rejoicing in the error, he's set to defend against that. He is rejoicing that Christ is being preached. And it took me a long time to appreciate that. I struggle with how can Paul rejoice at error being taught? Well, he's not rejoicing in the error. He's rejoicing in Christ. Christ is being preached. Here's what that means. The Word of God, the Christ, is so powerful that even when individuals stand up and teach it incorrectly, people who are out there listening are often moved by the message to go study God's Word. And what ends up happening is that interest that's been sparked even by error. That Christ that's been proclaimed even by error, causes people to go look for the Christ, and a lot of those people end up studying themselves out of error into the truth. Their whistles are whetted by the Christ and the proclamation, and they then began a search for truth. I don't know how many people I've met that said, "I was looking." Well, where did you start in error, but I was looking. Christ is preached, that's what Paul says, and in that I do rejoice. Number three, Paul's perspective, the rest of this chapter, well, at least from verse 19 to 26, has to do with three things. Number one, it has to do with his perspective on life. It has to do with his perspective on death. And it has to do with his perspective on service. Concerning life— Paul says, first of all, to end that section, he praises the Philippians with an expectation of moving forward and coming to see them again. Paul was also always hopeful and optimistic, always forward-looking. You don't find Paul being downtrodden and, and saying, woe is me, and the, the end is there. That's not the way Paul talks. And so, even in 19 and 20, he says, I know this is going to work out. I know it is. I'm going to come and I'm going to see you again. And and all of this earnest and expectation, Paul has that, verses 19 and 20. And then in verse number 21, he says, For to me, perspective, concerning life, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me. Now, Paul is in prison. And Paul's belief was there's going to be a good outcome to this, verses 19 and 20. I'm going to return to you. My deliverance will come through your prayers. Verse number 20, according to the earnest expectation, I'll not be ashamed. No, Paul has this optimistic, hopeful, positive plan, looking forward to the future. To me, to live is Christ. Concerning death in verses 21 to 23, or 22 and 23, he says, "To me to live is Christ, to die is gain." But um, to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, for I do not know that which I would choose. I think in the first time we talked about this, we referred to this as a very mature outlook, and it is: To live as Christ, to die is gain. Even if we can't say it yet. We would have to agree it's true. Uh, I might not be there yet. I might not say, well, you know, death would be better for me. Yeah, it might be the case. Maybe I haven't matured to that. Maybe I haven't learned that. Maybe I don't really live and believe that just yet. Paul did. To me. Now, living is Christ because he will be preached. Because souls will be saved. Because he will be glorified. However, to die is gain. And the reason that's true is really simple. And again, even if I don't believe it or feel it, I'd have to admit it's actually true for these reasons. Heaven is a better place than earth. It just is. Eternity is better than the temporal. The spirit is better than the flesh. Rest is better than labor. Labor. No more tears, pain, sorrow, suffering is better than tears, pain, sorrow, and suffering. Being at home with God is better than being in this body apart from God. The destination is better than the journey. There's no way I could say, even if I didn't feel it, think it there's no way I couldn't admit in every metric, in every measurable yes. All of that's better, and the only way to get there is death. And so then death is better. Paul's not wrong when he says that. But Paul's perspective continues, not just about life and not just about death. He gives us some more insight into this dichotomy of life and death. The reason he would say, I'm in a straight. I'm actually between these two. We might say, I'm between a rock and a hard place having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But then Paul pivots and says something else, and it has to do with his service to the brethren. Begin in verse number 24, and note what he says. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary or needful for you. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Death is better for me on a personal level, Paul would say. My staying and living and serving is better for you. Unlike many people, Paul's position is my better, dying, can wait because my living is better for you. My continuance with you all for your furtherance of joy and faith. The long and the short of it is this, Paul understood his benefit to the lives of others. He was insightful enough to know he meant something. And it tells us of the significance of him and his service. Hopefully it tells us something about ourselves. Your presence matters. Your life matters. You benefit others. You bless others one of the consequences of the wrong or a poor perspective is you begin to feel like none of that's true you begin to question your significance do i matter here you you start to question your presence does it matter that i'm around you you start to wonder about your contribution am i making a difference What the proper perspective provides of life and death and service is that it's true. Paul says, I have a purpose. I'm set for the defense of the gospel. I know that. I have a joy. He says, Christ is preached and I will rejoice. I have a future, Paul says and acknowledges. Now, death is better, yes, because of Christ, but my future is solidified by my present. I need to remain here for you so I can serve you, benefit you, bless you. Paul says, ultimately, I matter. I matter to God. I matter to myself. I matter to others. What's your perspective? What's your perspective on life? You don't hear Paul saying, I need to hold on to life and get all that I can out of it for me. Well, no. In fact, if that were it, Paul would say, let us eat, drink. Listen, if that were it, I'd rather die because I'd be better off with Christ. That's not it for Paul. What's your perspective on life? Paul's perspective is to live as Christ. What's your perspective on, on, on leaving here? Paul says to die is gain. Can you imagine that? I could be better off dead. That's what Paul's position is. But he says, listen, that can wait because I want to serve and I want to help. And by my staying and being here, if I live a fruitful life, a life of service, it will bless you. And I'd rather do that. My desire is to depart, better to remain. We sing the song, I trust we mean it. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Error is preached. Let's make no doubt about that. That's really where Paul began. He's sitting in prison. There's false teachers free, and they are disturbing and distressing God's people. Paul says, yeah, they're out there. Some preach Christ, envy of strife and... He says, but listen, some are preaching the truth because there are those preaching the goodwill. But Christ is preached. I trust that when you wake up and you go through your day and people keep telling you how bad the world is, I hope at some point you'll say to yourself, but yeah, Christ is being preached today. All over this world, somebody's talking about Jesus. And somebody hearing about Jesus is being helped today. And in that, I'll rejoice. Death is better to me, Paul says. Leads me to Christ. Leads me to heaven. Leads me to rest and freedom from sorrow, pain, and woe. But life is better for you. Better for me to remain and serve. Friends, I hope you know how much you matter. I hope you know how significant your presence is. I hope you know what a contribution you make because when you have the right perspective, then you matter to God. You will see your importance and significance and how you are necessary to benefit and bless other people. What a powerful, positive perspective. Let me ask you again, what's yours? Well, you should begin with the perspective of your need for Jesus. If where you sit and you are without our Lord, that should be the primary perspective in your life. What you need in your life, rather who you need in your life, is Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Let him be yours this evening. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? John 8 24, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am. I know if you have a King James version of the Bible, the word he is right after am, and it's italicized for a reason. It's not there. Jesus is not saying you believe that I am He. No, what He is saying is if you believe that I am, what He is saying is you need to believe that I am divine, that I am the divine nature in a body, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. You need to believe that. You need to allow that belief to move you to repentance, to change your heart, to change your mind, and come to Jesus. Confess the name of Christ and be immersed in water. For the forgiveness of your sins, and God through Jesus will save you. And friends, you can then rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Circumstances sometimes will be difficult, but circumstances don't determine perspective. They simply reveal the perspective. I hope ours will be like the Apostle Paul's. If not a Christian, we invite you to come one become one tonight. And if you are one and in need of our prayers, we invite you to come if we can help in any way as we stand and as we sing.